Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and this is found on page 976 in the Pew Bible. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to just take advantage of that Bible right in front of you, and you may take that as a gift from us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and let me uh, just add my welcome to Kays. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name's Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and uh, really delighted that you're spending time with us this morning, especially if this is your first time or you're newer and you're just learning about who we are as a church. I know finding a church home isn't an easy thing to do, so thanks for being with us this morning, for walking through those doors, and hopefully uh, you feel welcome here and uh, have been greeted, and people have been able to answer questions that you have. We are really delighted that you're here with us this morning. Um, Before we look at this passage together, I want to do what we do each week, which is to pray and ask that God would help us to understand this book. It's not merely ink on a page, but it's God's word to us, and pray that he would speak to us through it. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not only spoken in the past, but that you continue to speak through your word. Would you give us ears to hear now what you would have us to hear from this letter that Paul wrote so many years ago in which you are speaking? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every January, we as uh, campus pastors and senior pastors at Christ Community, we take a few days to, to get away and do some planning together and think about what's coming up and where we're headed as a church. And uh, the elders do that as well with the senior pastors. And, and about nine months ago, as we were doing that work together, we started talking about Simon Sinek, the, the author of the best-selling leadership book, Start With Why?, And even last year, as we had a team of people together here at Brookside looking at what it was going to take to add a second service, we're almost a year into doing two services here, Um, they actually watched Simon's TED Talk video about starting with why. And I have no idea if Simon is a Christian or not, but his big idea ought to describe every church. And he writes this, he says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And, and no, we're not selling anything here as a church, 
But do you catch what he said? It's, it's not what you do or even how you do it that matters most. It's why. What's the why behind it? It's always the why that matters most. And Simon warns in this book about the danger of having a fuzzy why. If you, if you get the why, the big why behind what you're doing, if you lose clarity about that, then it doesn't really matter what you're doing or, or how well you're doing it. But the trouble is, is that sometimes it's really hard to keep that big why clear because so much of our time and energy and our lives and our homes, our workplaces is spent on the what and the how, just how it works out. We spend most of our time and energy executing on the what and the how, and it's easy to forget about the why. And I know this happens to me. I think actually it can be some, some ways the easiest for pastors sometimes to forget the big why. I can start to see writing sermons and answering emails and setting up meetings as sort of just isolated tasks to be accomplished and forget the grand vision of why all of this matters. Or other times, and maybe this is, you felt this, the why starts to get fuzzy and you just start to wonder if the why is really worth it. When you don't have clarity, it doesn't seem as compelling anymore. And is this really worth it? Because when you stop to think about it, what we often think about as what church is, is actually kind of a strange thing when you think about what we do. So we come here once a week uh, to sing songs together. I mean, where else do you do that and get together and sing? Um, then you listen to me or Paul or Anthony you know, talk for a while, and then you eat a bite of some soggy bread, and then... You go home and go on about the rest of your life. I mean, apart from a bigger story, just doing those things kind of seems like, well, that's strange. I think we all have stories of church being boring or toxic, um, a place of hurt. Or maybe you just think about the church being a place that's just kind of ineffective. When we look around at, at all of the problems in our neighborhood, in our, in our city, in our families, and war-torn parts of the world, I think sometimes we can begin to wonder, is, is this really the best we can do? Is the local church the best that God can do? See, if we miss why, we miss everything. And so we're going to ask that question the next three Sundays across all of our campuses. We do this often as a church, a kind of leadership message, refocusing on what God has called us to be as the local church and, and what he's called us to be about. Because the thing is, is we're not the first people to struggle with this. Even, even the early church 2,000 years ago wrestled with this question of, of why and keeping the big why clear and at the center. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus, which we now have in our Bibles as the letter to the Ephesians. And a lot of what he's doing in this letter is just clarifying for them, reminding them of what matters most, the big why. So why church? Well, that's what we'll see in this letter. That's what keeps me coming back. It's why I'm here this morning. It's why, um, by God's grace and by his will, continue to be here week after week after week doing this together. Why? Because there's hope here. 
because there's hope here. Paul even prays for the church in this uh, previous chapter of the letter that, that we may know the hope to which he has called us. The local church is a place where hope is found. There is hope here. And not uniquely in, in Christ's community as though you know, somehow this particular local church is somehow better or different or, or more special than any other. But in the local church, there's hope here. The thing is, is that we are hope-based creatures. We're hope-based creatures. We are future-oriented creatures looking for something to hope in. How we experience today is unavoidably shaped by what we expect for tomorrow. And so where are you looking for hope? Where are you looking for a sense that tomorrow might possibly be better than today? Or that next year might be better than last year. What gives you that sense? Is it an advancement in your career? Maybe getting your finances finally figured out? Hope that the next round of elections will sort out the political situation now, or, or maybe it's more of you're looking for it in a, in a person, in a relationship, uh, a, a family member, a child. You see, all of those things are good things, but none of them can end up being the one thing that can truly bear the weight of all of our hopes. But as we look at Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote so many years ago, we're going to see three things in these three weeks, that there's hope for me, that there's hope for, for us, for reconciliation in our, in our congregations, in our community, in our cities, in the world. And that ultimately that there's hope for all. That we are now purveyors of hope to a broken world. There's hope here. In the local church, there is hope to be found. And the reason is that hope lives here. And the reason that is, is that the, the, the church tells a better story. And that's the first thing we're going to see this morning is that the church tells a better story. Now, I know that could sound at the first, like it's kind of an arrogant statement to make. But I think you'll see as we go on through the message that actually the story that the church tells is one that humbles us deeply. The church tells a better story. You see, every single one of us is writing a story in our lives. Every one of us is trying to live out a story. Some of us play the hero. Others of us play the villain. Most of the time, we kind of waffle between those two things in the stories of our lives. We want to be the main character, the writer, the director. And, and of course, at the end, we want the story to end well. We want a happy conclusion. And the story you're trying to live, it determines the hope that you have. The story you're trying to live, it determines the kind of hope, the quality of the hope that you have. So if your story is ultimately about family as the place where you find identity, then, then you will only be as happy as sort of your least happy family members, your least happy child, your least happy parent. Or if the story you're in is about your career, about figuring out that aspect of life, then you're, you'll only have a happy ending to the story if you continue to be pro promoted, if you continue to advance. 
or if it's about health, and then really you have to live forever and, and have good health all throughout life. So the question is, is, is the story that you're living, the story that you're a part of, is it big enough to encapsulate all the, the hopes that you have to explain all of the difficulties that come in? But this story, the story that the local church has been entrusted to, to proclaim, to celebrate, it's the best story. For it's the story that knows you, story that rescues you, and the story that ultimately includes you as part of it. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The story that knows us, the story that rescues us, the story that includes us. And see, the church has been entrusted with a story that knows you. And if we're really honest as we look at the story about us, it couldn't be a scarier story about who we really are deep down in the places of our hearts and minds that we, we try to keep from other people, that we try not to display. It's a pretty scary place. Now, I am not a fan of uh, sort of the horror genre of films or books. I remember once uh, when I was in college, I watched the film The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and uh, I didn't sleep at all uh, that night. And so I kind of said, this is probably not a good thing for me to be doing. Um, and yet, when we really begin to understand the story of us, of what goes on in our hearts and our minds, it's far scarier than any kind of supernatural sort of thriller horror story. Because just look at what Paul says in this passage. And keep in mind that Paul's writing to a real church. He's writing to real people like us, not all that different from us, living in a city, trying to figure out what it means to be the people of God, living in a local church. It's about 30 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. And you see, Paul understood the story, the darkness that lives inside each and every one of us, because you see, Paul didn't start off planting churches. Paul's first interaction with the church was trying to crush it, to try to arrest Christians, to have them put to death until he met Jesus. And then he began to start churches. Ultimately, Paul was killed in the process of planting churches. And Paul, he loved this church in Ephesus. He had spent two years, that was longer than he spent at most churches by a long shot. He spent two years in Ephesus. He knew these people well. Um, Acts chapter 20 tells us that they wept. He wept as he left to go to plant another church. He loved these people dearly. And so now, probably in prison, Paul is writing a letter to this church that he loves so dearly to remind them of the story and their role in that story, the role of the church in this grand story. He's sharpening their focus on the big why. So in chapter one of this letter, he's painted this grand picture of all that God is doing to rescue and restore the world, beginning from the foundations of the earth before them even. And then in the end of chapter two, he's going to paint this amazing picture of what the local church is in God's plan. But here in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, he reminds us of their story, of, of Paul's story, of our story. And it couldn't be a scarier story. Let me just read these verses for you again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead 
and your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a way of talking about Satan, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So our story, our story is that we are already dead, according to Paul. You see, our, our biggest problem isn't that we lack resources or education or money or political will or strategy. Our biggest problem is not the people around us, not even ultimately the structures that are around us. Our biggest problem is us. Why? Because we I am a son of disobedience. That's what Paul calls us. Sinful, following the flow of this world. The devil, he says. And maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, um, that sounds, one, a little extreme. And two, kind of outdated. This language of transgressions, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, all this kind of stuff. And maybe, sure, you'd say, yeah, I, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I, I make mistakes in life. But I'm, I'm basically a good person. But in this story, there are no basically good people, only dead people. Look at how Paul continues. Oh, he says, we're constantly living for our passions, slaves to our desires. And, and even if you're sort of like, I don't know about this whole Satan, Prince of the Power of the Earth thing, I mean, that does sound a lot like us as people, doesn't it? Slaves to our desires. You know, every once in a while you read something or hear something, a quote or someone speaking, and, and it, it just, something clicks, and you're just kind of have that sense of, man, I'm busted. That's a perfect description of me, or that I'm so convicted in this moment. And I had a moment like that maybe three or four years ago. I was reading a book by N.D. Wilson called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. And in that book, he poses a very scary question, and that is, would you want a master novelist to study you, to know you, and then to create a character based on you for her novel? Would you want someone who is just a master at understanding human nature and describing people in, in all of their aspects and, and understanding their thoughts and their inner monologue and then create that character in a story? This is what N.D. Wilson writes. He says, who are you? What kind of novel are you in? What's the conflict? If you were reading the story, watching a really omniscient narrator describe you, your innermost thoughts, your insecurities, all your desires, would you love to see that story written? And then he continues. Would you like to see yourself as you really are, with not one of your thoughts or impulses omitted? Listen to your dialogue. Look at your thoughts. Be horrified. If someone else was delivering your, delivering your lines, would you like them? If someone else was wearing your attitude, would you be impressed? You see, as much as I'd like to believe that I'm not the villain in my story, that I'm really this hero, I know deep down that I am the villain in my story. Deep down, we, we, we all know, I think, 
at some level that that's true. But here's the thing, that's not even the worst part. Because Paul continues, he goes on, he says, we were children of wrath by nature. By nature we're children of wrath. Not just our behavior, not just the things that we do, not just our actions, but who we are, our nature. Because of our rebellion, because of our, our feasting on death, a holy God, the one who made me, sees me, knows me, and I reject him over and over again. You see, that's the core of what sin is. Sin prefers anything to God. That's what we have to keep in mind. Sin is always a rejection of a person before it's ever the breaking of a rule. One pastor describes sin this way. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. And ultimately, he will not turn a blind eye. He can't. Because you see, in order for God to be a good, loving God, he must also be judge. He must be just. He has to. Uh, he can't look the other way at murder, rape, the abuse of children. He can't ignore slavery, terrorism, exploitation. And maybe perhaps sitting here this morning, we, we would be okay, maybe in theory, with the idea or the concept of hell for those kinds of awful people. But here's the problem. According to Jesus, the root of all of those awful things lives in every single one of us. They live in here. It's not just some people out there doing awful things. It's here. Our story is one of death. Some of you have experienced a lot of death. Some of you have experienced death recently. As a pastor, I'm often up close in those moments of death. And death is ugly. And even the very best deaths are jarring, aren't they? Even, even the person who lives to old, old age and they pass away peacefully and painlessly in their sleep. It's still jarring, isn't it? When you see a cold, lifeless body, you, you know how helpless it is. That's us, Paul says. And yet, somehow, in the, in the midst of being in that state, we think that we can still save ourselves. We're a, a corpse on a slab. If, if I'm good enough or successful enough, if I carve out enough happiness in life. But here's the thing. The dead can't do any of that. They, they can't do anything. And that's the church's story. Because listen, this means that the church is not a place for people who think that they're okay. The church is, is not a, people, a place for people who, who think that they can make it on their own. The starting point for being a part of the church is believing that, that you're not good enough. 
that you're not better than, that you don't have any hope. It's admitting that you don't have it all together. Acknowledging that you are dead. The church, says Tim Keller, is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. It's not some place where we come to admire people who have it all figured out. It's a place where people who are desperately broken and in need of healing come to find a new identity in the story of the gospel. It's not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And when we first come to that hospital, we enter not through the ER, but through the morgue because we are already dead. Now, you might be thinking at this point in the message, but wait, Bill, I thought you said this is a message about there being hope here. And this kind of seems like the exact opposite of hope. And you're right. In fact, later on in Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, Paul actually describes this state as being in a place of having no hope. But the next words out of Paul's mouth in verse Four, they're two of the greatest words ever written. I mean that. We were dead, and then verse four, but God. We were dead in our trespasses of sins, but God. Yes, the story knows us. It could be scarier, but it also rescues us, and the rescue could not be more satisfying because you may have noticed as we were going through those first three verses that they were all in the past tense. This is who we were. This is who we still would be apart from Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. But God who overflows with mercy. If you were here last week, Pastor Anthony did an amazing job of unpacking this theme of Christ's mercy on all who would call and cry out for mercy. But because of his great mercy, he who loved us, because he loved us for no other reason, not because we brought any kind of lovability to the equation, but simply because we've been chosen before the foundations of the earth. He loved us before we ever came into this world. Because of his great mercy, he has chosen us. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. It's not when we got a little bit better, not when we tried a little bit harder, not when we cleaned up our act, not when we sort of made the decision that this was going to be different, but when we were dead in our trespasses, that's when Jesus came and made us alive and, and he says, God raised us up with Christ. That means that, that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, if we've placed our hope and trust in him, that when Jesus walked out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, that you did also. We walked out of the grave alive. So how did that happen? By glorious, unfathomable, amazing for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast by grace through faith grace is a gift it is the gift from God which, which makes sense it has to be a gift if we're dead we, we can't do anything 
It has to be a gift. Dead people can't earn anything. So it's all through faith, through trust, dependence. Again, not, not perfect faith, not, not doubtless faith, not faith that, that never falters or never questions or never wonders, but simply faith enough to say that I'm with Christ and I have nowhere else to turn and I'm with him. And this story can be our story. And as a church, this is what we do. We tell the story over and over again to one another. That's why we come together every Sunday. That's what we're doing when we sing those songs. Every one of the songs that we sing is a retelling, singing to one another, telling one another, proclaiming to one another the story. Every time we celebrate communion, hear the word taught, it's a retelling of the story. Because we don't get together just so we can come for a little inspiration or we can meet to add some rules or techniques for making our life a little happier. We don't come together to, to look down on people or even simply to, to try to just be a little bit more effective. We meet to tell this story and it's an incredible story. It's, a, it's not just a story about sort of bad people becoming good people or mean people getting a little bit nicer. This is a story about dead people being made alive. That's the story that we tell. Let's watch. I didn't go to church a lot as a kid. It was just my mother who went to church on occasion, um, but she always believed in Jesus, would always pray with us. So I did believe in him, um, but I didn't know what it meant to truly believe in him and to follow him. On November 3rd, 2015, um, my two-month-old father uh, went to work and decided he wasn't going to come home. I wanted to lay in bed till I died. I didn't know what to do. I had no job. Um, was going to be a stay-at-home mom. I just, re I just reached a point of knowing that everything I ever do, did in my life to make me feel happy or have this wonderful life was so wrong. My family came to me, my brother especially, and said, why don't you just come to church with us today? So I came, I, I think I might have even been in my sweat still. And uh, I just came and I just cried the whole service. But it wasn't until this where I, I had nowhere else to go that I realized what it really meant to surrender everything else and really listen and know that His way is better. He saved me in that moment of not only a place to live, but of an actual hope that I can do this. Um, I know it was a one-time help, but it, it changed everything. It, it, it flipped a coin for me that said that I could do this. and. Um, and I've been here since. I found hope at Christ Community just because with everything around me that seemed so horrible and scary and different, I, I wasn't scared. I didn't know what a happy life would look like, but I knew what it felt like. Um, one of the things that I found here at Christ Community is that I look forward to it. Um, that it brings me back down to earth and even though I've had a crazy week or sometimes even a crazy morning before I got here, as soon as I get here, a lot of times whatever is being preached on that day 
is what exactly I was going through. And especially in the beginning, it seemed like every single week something I was pondering or thinking about, the answer was kind of shoved in my face. And I figured if I'm gonna do anything with my life, I've got to learn to follow and listen and not try to fix it myself. Church is a place to be yourself. Church is a place to find help. Church is a place to find someone to help. I'm just so thankful for this church. It gives me hope. And that really leads us to our, our last thing this morning. And we need to begin to think about how does this actually work itself out in our lives? Because the story, it doesn't end here. Because yes, the story, it knows us, it rescues us. But what's so amazing is that the story also includes us. It invites us in. It gives us something to do. We're, we're not just saved from something, from all of the stuff that Paul's just talked about in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. We're not just saved from those things, but we're also saved for things, for good things to do. For even though Paul clearly says that there is nothing that we can do to earn this, he continues in verse 10 and he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we also have to ask ourselves a, a few questions, both individually as people here this morning, and also what would this look like in the context of, of our community? And the first one is just this, have we embraced this hope? Paul says that we, who have embraced the story, his church, we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. And if you've ever um, made a great meal or built something for the yard or done some landscaping, and you've just kind of stood back and admired your work, that's what, what the Father, what Jesus does when he looks at the church. We're his workmanship. We're together being made into a holy temple, Paul's going to talk about next week. We're this building, this living building that he's making, a place for him to dwell. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? There's hope here. Have you embraced it? If not, according to Paul, then you're dead. You're a slave to your desires, and, and that story will not end well. And again, I know that sounds extreme, but this, this story is only good news for those who want it. And maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that that, that death, that slavery to your desires, that that lives inside of you. And you've been let down too many times by those desires. And if you're having that realization this morning, that's a sign that life is starting to stir. That maybe you're starting to take your first true breaths. There's hope for you. This story can be yours. Pray. Ask God to receive this story. Ask for his forgiveness. Receive his life. Why stay dead any longer? And if you do that, for those who have done that, are we humbly walking in good works? It's an amazing verse, isn't it? Verse 10, that we were created for good works and that God has already prepared them for us. We just need to walk in them. They've been prepared for beforehand for us. 
We just walk into him. This is so important. And, and I think most of us probably have a sense of this already, but let me just say it again, that, that the essence of what church is really about is about far more than just 75 minutes on a Sunday morning where we sing and do this preaching thing and communion. It's about so much more than that. Stan Archie, the pastor at our sister church, Christian Fellowship Baptist, he Osman, reminds me that, that Sunday morning, this is just the huddle. Monday through Saturday, that's where we're out running the plays on the field. We are his workmanship created and redeemed for good works and good work. Because most of that doesn't happen here on Sunday morning. Most of those good works and the good work that he's called us to happens in the context of our workplaces, in our homes, with our families, in our neighborhoods, is as we're going grocery shopping, as we're doing our chores around the house, as we are interacting with our coworkers, doing good work. That's the place where this gets lived out. If you're a Christian, you are the church everywhere you go. You bring redemption to your work, in school, and home, in your vocation, in your good work, and in your good works. In our relationships and everything we do, it's, it's our concern for the poor, the marginalized, it's the people, the organizations we partner with and, and support locally and globally. What are the good works that God has planned for you? He's created you for good work. He's laid these good works out before you. So walk in them. Which ought to humble us to the depths, right? Because even though it sounds arrogant to say the church has the, has the best story, if you think back to the, the scary part of that story, we all ought to know there's no room for pride. There's no room for judgmentalism or arrogance. The story makes us humble, joyful people. We were dead, and the only reason we're alive is because of Jesus. And now we get to extend that hope to others. And that's the last question this morning. Are we extending this hope to others? Are we the kind of church, are we becoming increasingly the kind of church where broken people can find healing, the hurting can find comfort, where the lost can be found? Are we living before others in such a way that they want to know about the hope that we have? Are we able to give a reason for the hope that we have? When's the last time you invited someone to church or prayed with someone in need? Maybe who's even coming to your mind in just now in those moments who you know needs help, who needs hope? What's standing in your way of, of offering that hope to them? This is happening at Christ Community. This hope is being extended all the time across our city. It's an amazing thing to get to be a part of it. It's happening. It's why uh, nearly a year ago we added a second service here to make room for more people who are coming to receive this hope. It's why we need to expand in Olathe. It's why we need to ultimately to buy land and expand in Shawnee Mission. See, it's not about us or even for us. It's, it's mostly for people that you and I will probably never meet who are moving into those neighborhoods who need a better story. For this is what Jesus has done for us. The church tells a better story. And, and, I, and I love stories. I love films and the stories that they tell. But the best ones, right, are, are true. 
If you take a good story, the only thing you do to make it better is to have it true. Because what would make Star Wars better? I mean, besides better acting. Um, but if it were real, right? If, if Luke and Han were real, if, if Gandalf and the Hobbits really existed, if Harry and Dumbledore were actually people that you could meet and know, and the amazing thing about the Christian story is that it actually happened, that it is actually happening. You see, Christianity has all the elements which make us love the greatest myths that make the greatest stories. C.S. Lewis writes that the heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be a myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. And a historical person is crucified. It's all in order under Pontius Pilate. You see, this is the better story. It's true. It's a story where the dead live, a story where the great and powerful king comes to save us, who slays the ultimate dragon and promises to love us forever. A story that knows us, that rescues us, that includes us. That's the story that we as the church are entrusted to proclaim. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you, in your, there's not even adjectives sufficient, in your amazing, unfathomable, unstoppable grace, that you have made us alive. We never wanted to follow Jesus, but you rescued us. And you have made us alive with Christ. Would you give us humble confidence, joyful boldness to share that story wherever we go? In Jesus' name.